This is such an interesting passage of scripture before us this morning, and um, I think it's going to be very beneficial for us to work through it, because there is this idea of feasting with Christ and what that looks like. Um, But just to recap how we got here, last week we were talking about the the passage where um, the woman from the streets came in to the Pharisee's house. Remember that? There was a Pharisee who invited Jesus Christ to have dinner with him, and they're, they're sitting there eating, and then all of a sudden, it doesn't say this explicitly in Scripture, but I just imagine she busts open the door, comes in, totally uninvited, goes to Jesus, breaks down in front of him, and starts washing his feet with her tears in her hair and, and anointing his feet and kissing his feet. Do you remember that? And, that? and the idea was that here was this Pharisee who thought he had everything together, and here's this woman of the streets who had a reputation she couldn't escape, and the Pharisee says, if this guy really was a true prophet, he would know who it is who's touching him right now, and he wouldn't allow it. And so he's questioning Jesus and questioning, how can this man be a true man of religion, yet let this type of a person approach him? And Jesus, knowing what he was thinking, says, hey, I got something to tell you. And he goes through this whole list, right? One of the things we walked away from last week was this concept that it's possible to be perfectly religious, yet know nothing about Jesus Christ. It's even possible for us to have respect for Christianity specifically and know nothing of the gospel it preaches. And so we went through that list of a couple of things that we can do to live in that state of ignorance. And one of those is to feel that we've got to perform for our salvation, to feel like the only way that Jesus Christ will accept us is if somehow we clean ourselves up. Isn't that part of what we think happens? We think that in order to come to Christ, that we've got to get some stuff straightened out in our lives, and then he will accept us. But in that passage, it was perfectly clear that this woman was broken. She was a woman who, if you compared the two, the Pharisee to her, she would not have won the comparison, right, morally speaking. Yet what Jesus told her was this idea, you're forgiven, but go sin no more. This is this idea, right? The how, how can you couple both of those? How can, you, how can you accept this free offer of grace Yet with it comes the expectation to live a different life. So we'll unpack that a little bit this morning, but it's such a beautiful image to transition into because really the passage that's set before us this morning, even though it is shielded in a parable, is an idea about how to get to heaven. And that's a weird thing to kind of look at. When you first look at it, you're kind of like, how, how does this have anything to do with getting to heaven? But it does, and we're going to unpack that this morning. And so the major doctrine that I want to defend is that even though many will excuse themselves from heaven, heaven will be filled with those who accept Christ's invitation. So even though many will excuse themselves from heaven, heaven will be filled with those who accept Christ's invitation. And I want to put this before you as we get started this morning, and I'm going to put it on the screen as well. Many who believe that God exists will excuse themselves from Christ and remain outside of heaven. Think about that. I don't know about you, but there's been a a part in my life, especially when I was was younger and, and definitely when I was first getting into apologetics, it's like the goal here is to get people to intellectually agree with me that God exists, right? That's what I wanna do. But that's not enough, right? Because James tells us even the demons believe in God. But that is, that, that is not salvific. A, a simple intellectual assent to the knowledge of God is not salvific. Knowing about God or even remotely believing in God is not salvific. Doesn't save you. Having the right beliefs aren't necessarily what save you. So what does that mean? Well, we've got to push on this because actually these Jews who this parable was addressed to knew God. 
They believed in God. They weren't atheists. They weren't people who were sitting there saying, you know what, I don't think God exists. And that's something we face in our modern culture. There's this, there's this very much a tension between science and religion, right? And so uh, in, the, in the science realm, it's say we talk about va- facts. You religious people talk about values, and there's this fact-value split. This one describes absolute and objective reality. This one really is super subjective and doesn't really reflect reality. So how can we, how can we bridge those two? And so we spend a lot of our time actually saying, hey, God actually exists. We've got to kind of even start there. We're starting there before we can actually get to who is God? Who is this personal God? And is this personal God Jesus Christ? So there's a lot of layers we gotta drill through in our day to do evangelism, to preach the gospel. But in this time and in this situation, these folks here were not atheists. They fully believed in God, yet they're being challenged. And it's such an interesting thing that we'll unpack this morning, so I want that in your head, that don't settle for mere belief in God. Because dining with him is different than a theoretical knowledge of him, all right? Having a meal with him is different than just thinking he exists. So I want that to be in your heart and your mind as we get started this morning. So the three stops that we're going to make, just so that you can follow along with me. Who needs to eat? We're going to unpack that idea. How to stay away from the feast. And three, how to get to heaven. Who needs to eat? How to stay away from the feast? And how to get to heaven. So the first question, who needs to eat, right? First off, everyone needs to eat. When we think about this banquet here, it is, it is a parable, it's a story, it's meant to, to portray a deeper truth, um, and, and it teaches a lesson here, but the idea is that there is uh, this relationship here, and Jesus Christ, who's the one who's telling this parable, at another time, another place, literally calls himself the bread of life. Do you remember that? He also said something really hard to some disciples. He said, he said if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood... You have no part with me. And everyone wanted to leave. You know, and we're like, whoa, that's pretty bad evangelism, Jesus. Like, he needs to go to Evangelism 101, learn how to do this. He's kind of new, first year of ministry. We get it, Jesus. So it would be really good if you clarified what you mean by that, because he can't really mean that. What does he say? He says, are these words too hard for you? You want to leave? And a lot of them did. But one of them says, where will we go? For you have the the words of eternal life. But Jesus put that on the table. Lest you eat my flesh, drink my blood, you have no part with me. So everyone needs to eat. And this is a weird religious language-packed idea, right? So it doesn't fit well in our 21st century culture. Eat Jesus? (laughs) We don't get it, right? We don't even get this idea of dining with Christ. We don't even get this idea of a wedding feast with Christ. How was the church the bride of Christ? We are all messed up when we try to conceptualize that. But what we have to understand is that everyone has to eat. There's not a person that's ever lived who is alive today or who ever will live, physically speaking, who can live very long without eating, all right? And this is a concept that we see in the spiritual world as well, that if we don't dine with Christ, if we don't eat with Christ, we won't eat at all. Do you get that? In the spiritual world, you eat with Christ or you don't eat at all. I'm reminded of Beauty and the Beast. Do you remember um, the first night when he's kidnapped her? And, and, and it's like ready for dinner time and she doesn't want to eat. So the beast gets mad and he says, you'll eat with me or you won't eat at all. And he slams the door, right? Like literally that is where we are with Christ. We eat with Christ or we don't eat at all. And just as those who don't eat physically today will perish, those who don't eat with Christ, those who aren't found at the wedding banquet 
they so too will perish. Who needs to eat? Everyone. Who needs to be at the banquet unless you perish? Everyone. It logically falls that if you're not at the banquet, you will perish. And Jesus isn't, isn't, isn't confusing this issue. This is the issue. But here's the deal. The original invitation was to these Jews, and these Jews needed to eat the bread of life. They needed to take part in Christ. They needed to be found in Christ. And Jesus is saying to these, there's an invitation that went out. Who was the invitation going out to in the first order? The Jews. Do you get that? It was going out to them first. They are the people in this story who heard, who were offered, and said, may I be excused? And they excused themselves. They made excuses, and they missed the banquet. And we see that in verse 18. But here's the thing. We've, we can't confuse the idea here because the invitation is now to the whole world. And it's, and it's almost, and it's hard to really be dogmatic about this, but it is almost an act of grace that the Jews refused. Now, I believe in a God who is bigger than, than that, in that he wasn't waiting for the Jews to make a move, and then he says, okay, now I see what you did, now I'll make my next move. The God of the Bible is the God who has set all things from the beginning. He knows the end from the beginning, but not only that, he's ordained them. So he's not waiting for things in time as if he's bound by temporal information, waiting for the next bit of data to come in so he can process it and figure out his next move. That's not how he works. But it's almost as if, I say almost, emphasize, almost as if it's an act of grace that the Jews refuse. Why? Because those who refuse the first invitation are the ones who opened up the invitation for the rest of us. Do you get that? How all that works, I don't think we'll be able to settle. But there is a relationship there. They says, since you, in this parable, since the first group refused, he says, go out everywhere else and invite everyone in. First order invitation was not everyone. Now, theologically, we have to deal with that. In God's economy, I think he had a plan. But as the plan works out in time, in human history, first order invitation was to the Jews. The Jews excused themselves. Who does it go to next? Everyone else, which is beautiful. So every person on earth needs to eat with Christ. And if they reject the banquet invitation, they too will perish. And I want you to have this in your mind. If you are not at the wedding feast, you too will be lost. You know, and this is not a politically correct thing to say today. Um, in, in our culture, people will say, who are you to say that your way is the true way? There's very much an emphasis on, on uh, this, this political correct culture and to just have this mode of tolerance and inclusivity that every way leads to God. I've had so many conversations with people. Um, you know, I still work in the aerospace industry and I get to rub shoulders with people from all over the place. And then I've had so many conversations where people will say, how can you be so arrogant, so close-minded to say that your way is the right way? Well, at the end of the day, you have two options. Actually, three, but two major options, all right? Either one of us is right and the other is wrong, or we're both wrong. We can't both be right and completely disagree with each other. Either Jesus is God or he's not God. He can't be God and not God, all right? So what world religion are you talking about? Because in Christianity, we literally believe that Jesus is God, 
In Judaism, they believe that Jesus was a good preacher, but he isn't God. So how do those both lead to the same place when exactly Christ's word says, you've got to come through me. Salvation is by me alone. And then there's this other idea of all roads lead to the same place. How can they, that you can't have two mutually exclusive truths being equally true. It doesn't work. I was sitting at a Starbucks with a guy, probably about a year ago now, downtown, and he was a very eclectic guy. It was an interesting conversation. But he said, well, he said, well, lots of people have different opinions about who Jesus is. So as long as you believe in Jesus, okay, so he reduced the argument, okay, yeah, Jesus is the way, but what's your opinion of Jesus? And he started to go through the idea, you know, you've heard that idea. It says, um, you know, all religions are just, they all have one piece of the truth. And that idea that really it's, it's three blind men trying to describe an elephant. And one blind man says, you know, he's grabbing the ear and he says, here's reality. Reality is flat and it's soft. The other one says, no, reality is actually kind of firm and it's like a pillar. He's grabbing the leg of the elephant. The other one's grabbing the tail. He's like, no, it's kind of skinny and weird, you know. And then the, the author, he's sitting there, he says, but what they don't know is that they all have just a piece of the elephant, right? As if all religions have a piece of the truth. But here's the thing, is that assumes this omniscient view that you actually get to see the whole picture and you alone know what is reality in order to say that they only have a piece of the elephant. So how, how, does, this, how does this work, right? But he was saying to me that this, you just got a piece of Jesus. Well, which Jesus are we talking about? Are we talking about the Jesus of, of Islam that they appreciate? Are we talking about the Jesus of Jehovah's Witnesses who is not God but was created in time? Are we talking about the, the Jesus of the Mormons who's the spirit brother of Lucifer? Are we talking about this Jesus of Christianity who says that through him all things were created and he, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Before Abraham, I am what? Who is Jesus? That's one of the most important questions we'll ever answer. But here's the thing. These people, the Jews, missed that question. They don't see Jesus as God. And they excuse themselves from the banquet. So Jesus' response, open it up. But I want to unpack the second idea here, how to stay away from the feast, because I think we can learn some things. First, desire to be somewhere else when the feast happens. If you want to stay away from the feast, desire to be somewhere else when the feast happens. You see in verse 18, it says, And at that time for the banquet, he sent his servants to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. They all alike began to make excuses. And you know what? When you actually go through the list of the excuses that they make, you can see that there's actually some dishonesty that's going on here. So let's unpack these, these uh, three things, right? The first one, sorry, I can't come because I bought a field. Who buys a field before considering it, right? Is that truly gonna keep you from this? Two, um, I bought some oxen. It's like I bought some farm equipment, right? How urgent is it to go look at the new farm equipment? And how likely is it that you would have bought it without inspecting it first? But maybe, okay. But then the third one, which is more difficult, he says, I'm getting married, right? But, but we would say, well, was that not a consideration when you first accepted the invitation? Did you not know you were getting married? And if you were getting married and this banquet really meant something to you, wouldn't you preserve that commitment first? And in our world, we're like, no, that's kind of, this is maybe more important, right? We would wrestle with that. It's just a meal. But in this parable, obviously, it's not just a meal. 
But what Jesus is communicating in his every case where he's making an excuse, whether it's a relationship or it's economic, they would prefer to be somewhere else when the feast takes place. And they excuse themselves based on this preference. And so Jesus is getting to the heart of this. And I want to put this on the screen for us to think about that. How do we stay away, value commerce, or even relationships over Christ? I think that this is something that we've got to look at here. And I believe that it's such an insult for them that they would, that they would let this man in this parable go through all the trouble and all the expense to prepare this banquet, having given their word that they would be there in the first place. But now at the critical moment, when it's time to show up, what do they say? Not going to be there. Think about that. Think you're gonna, I'm going to plan this big feast, this big party for you, my friend. And I'm going to buy all this food, and I'm going to set up everything. I'm going to rent this hall. I'm going to do all of this. And then the, then the weekend comes. You call your friend after you spent all this money, gone through all this time. You got the servants in place. You got the DJ. You got the catering. You got all of it. Then you call your friend, and you say, hey, where are you? We're all here. Where are you? Oh, man, actually... I gotta go look at my property I just bought. What would you feel? Wouldn't you feel like, what? Why'd you accept if you didn't intend to come? So it's such an insult for them to do this. But here's the thing I think Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones gets this right when he comments on this passage. He says, How could anything be more insulting? He says, We, we see first that they were guilty of accepting the first invitation conditionally. The condition being that it should fit in with and suit their convenience. So we have to ask ourselves the same question. What are we allowing to keep us away from Christ? And I think part of it, how we could stay away from Christ, is that we can assume that there's another invitation coming. I think that it is not explicit in this text, but I think it, it's something that we can, can, can see as still following, that these folks possibly thought, it's just one banquet. There will be another one coming. And so often we think like that. And I, I run into people all the time, and I've, I've experienced it myself. There's been times where I even, I've, I've walked in sin, and I say to myself, well, I have an option to repent and turn or to live here. I don't know about you, have you ever felt that tension? Say, I can live here or I can turn from this. And then there's a part of it that you say, no, it's okay to live here for a little while. As if you're guaranteed tomorrow to get out of it. But it's such a presumption. It's a presumption that we have another invitation coming. It's presumption to get things right. Have, how many people have been at odds with a family member and they don't want to reconcile the situation? They don't want to repent. They don't want to, don't want to come together and find peace until what? Someone's about to die. And then they're like, oh, I'm running out of time. I better get this fixed. Have you ever seen that? Why? Because they, the, the assumption that I'll have another opportunity evaporates. That I might not have another opportunity to get this right. And you see families coming together and duking it out, dealing with it. Because they know now that their time is short. And we must live as if this is the same reality for us that there's not necessarily another invitation coming. We believe from Scripture there's one banquet, and if we want to stay away from that banquet, there's a couple of things that we can do. First is assume that another one's coming, but there's some more I want to unpack for you. 
How many people face death suddenly and without warning? I don't know about you, but I've seen so many people die. Now, I'm not that old, but I've seen so many people die with no warning. I was in Canada when I was 19, racing motorcycles for a living. Don't do that. But I was up there, and there was a guy who was riding, and he crashed behind this hill, and someone else couldn't see him and landed on him. And ended up, the guy died within a few hours from internal bleeding. And I'm sitting there with his wife on this hay bale right where he died. I'm 19. And she's sitting there just, she's crying. She's, I can't believe this is real. Like, it's not real. Right? That first, that's that first denial. The stages of grief. The first one's denial. And she says, this is our one-year anniversary. He wanted to come race this race, and we're going to go on our one-year anniversary trip leaving from here. And he's dead. Well, what do you say to someone like that? And then I had to give the service to all these Canadians, and I'm 19, I don't know anything. But I got to preach at this service with thousands of people who are lost, and the central point of my message was that you don't know when your time is. Life is but a vapor. So we literally are lying to ourselves if we think we know the hour we are going to die, because you don't. You have no idea. How many times have we heard of axles and semis busting off and going across the center median and smashing a car going the other way and the person driving is taken out right then? You assume you have time. You assume that you can get this stuff straight. But it's a false assumption and it's the same kind of assumption I believe that these folks were saying is saying there will be another banquet. There will be another opportunity. There will be another time. But here's some more I want to get through really quick. I believe that we also assume that our business will one day let up. Some people think, you know what, in order to truly devote my life to Christ, I've got to wait for a future phase, for that future phase when things aren't as busy. We tell ourselves that. It won't come. It'll never come. But also we think to ourselves, one day our lifestyle will be more open to becoming religious. How many young people do you know who literally treat life like that? They say, I'm gonna have some fun, then at a certain age, I'll settle down and I'll get stuff right. How many, how many say that? How, how many have that as their guiding philosophy? Like literally. How many of us have fallen susceptible to that in our youth? This is the time to have fun. This is the time to do whatever we want to do. Because there will always be time to get it right later. But once again, I believe that the devil would love nothing more for us to tell ourselves that we have more time and that it's okay to waste the time we have. And there's another time in life coming when it'll be more convenient for us to respond to Christ. So how do we stay away? I think we should value other things, whether it's commerce or relationship over Christ. And desire to be somewhere else when the feast happens. And third, and how I want to finish up tonight, actually this morning. Third question, how to get to heaven I think this is a question that we ask, we ask ourselves, and if we are active in evangelism, it's a question that comes up often. So I think it's worth getting right this morning. How do you get to heaven? And I think that if we poll people today, um, as, as many organizations have, you get diverse answers, right? Some people will say what you've got to do 
is be a good person, okay? Be a good person. Well, what is our problem with that? Well, one, we believe that no one is good, so we're already out. But two, let's just assume that the doctrine of original sin is not true, which is a bad idea to assume because it is true, but assume that's not true. And let's say we kind of are good. Okay, great. Blank slate. You're born with a blank slate. Now, all you have to do is be good. Define good. Aren't we in trouble now? Good according to who? Well, in our, our postmodern culture that says everything is relative, truth is relative, morals are relative, so is my good your good? No. As long as I'm living according to my internal moral compass, I'm okay. Mine might not be yours. So you have no right to tell me <laughs> what's right, and I likely have no right to tell you what's right. So let's all do what's right in our own eyes. Doesn't that remind you of a certain passage in the scripture, right? And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that was a great time, wasn't it? No. But that's part of what we say. We say, okay, be a good person. A good person according to what? According to what standard? According to what guideline? And here's where we get crushed. And we get crushed, I think, appropriately. Because what the gospel literally says is that premise one. No one is good. Everyone has sinned. Everyone deserves death. And here's the logical extension of that that is hard for us to swallow and is not politically correct. But God would be perfectly justified if he saved no one. Who does he owe salvation to? No one. So when we say God is unjust or unjust unless he saves everyone, what we've just done is we've superimposed our idea of morality on God. Now, he's got to do what I think is right. We've inversed the order, haven't we? He's the one who gets to say, why? Because his very nature is holy, righteous, and true. Your nature, my nature, in the flesh is not. It is corrupt, and our hearts are deceitful most of all. As David said, search my heart, O Lord, and see if there's any offensive way in me. Why did he need Jesus? Why did he need the Lord God to search his heart because he wasn't qualified. That would be like, I've said it before and I'll say it again, I'd be like an insane person telling their therapist, I'm good. You're not qualified to say that because you're here. And we are not qualified to say that we are good because we are here. So the rules are set and established not internally but external to us. The rules are outside of us, and the rules dictate what is objective, right, and wrong. Because it's based in the nature of God, not in society, and not in our subjective feelings. Because if you place it in subjective feelings, then no one has the right to say to anyone else that what they're doing is wrong. But we know that's not true, because we would obviously say it's not okay to rape people, independent of what you feel internally is right and wrong. When we say, okay, we'll move it to the society, the society gets to say what is right and wrong. Well, that's a little better. At least you have a group. At least you have a committee, right? That's better. But then if society gets to say what is right and wrong, then no external society has the right to say to any other society whether or not they're evil. You have no evil societies. But I believe it's possible to have evil societies. It's, evil to have, it's possible to have evil cultures. Very easy for us to go back to World War II and see the culture of the Third Reich, 
who saw Jews as subhuman, and it was perfectly moral in that cultural narrative to eliminate them. So the trials in Nuremberg, what did they say? They said, you can't do that. They said, why? Within our culture, it was perfectly acceptable. And they said, there is a law above the law. And societies can be, cultures can be evil. If people can be evil, cultures can be evil. So this person can't say, and societies can't say what is right and wrong. There has to be a law above the law that gives moral law any objective meaning and value that is true for all people in all times in all places. That's the standard. Now, what does it mean to be a good person? Now we can talk about it. But what the scripture has said is that in order to be a good person, you have to be completely without sin. Well, enter original sin. The scripture says that we were all born into sin. We were conceived in sin. We inherited sin. So we have to deal with that. But even if your denomination doesn't like that, let's just start with a blank slate. Have you ever sinned? Yes, you're not a good person. We're all done. Doesn't matter where you are, where you start. You've sinned, and will you sin again? Yes. So what does it mean to be a good person? The Bible demands absolute perfection. It says, be holy, for I am holy. Who's, who's the model? It's not any one of us. It is God, whose very nature is holy, righteous, and true. So we're eliminated from this ability to say that we are good people. Therefore, this is how we get to heaven. So the gospel has something to say to people like you and me. People who, like the woman who was known as a prostitute in the land, who came in and sat at the feet of Christ, fully aware of exactly who she was and what her reputation was and unable to escape her reputation, didn't care, came to Christ, not saying I'm better now than I once was, but able to, as Jonathan Edwards says, coming to the great physician saying, I am sicker than ever. Here is what's really wrong with me. We don't come to Christ and say, Jesus, I've been doing a lot of work. You should see where I came from, but I, here I am today. I think I'm in a state where you can accept me. No, the idea is to come to him like we come to a doctor. When you've got cancer inside, when you've got giant tumors, and you're literally about to die, when your kidneys are shutting down, you don't say, I'm pretty good, I'm all right, I'm all right. I mean, just a little bit of pain, like a four. You're going to say, no, I'm toast. Like, I'm pretty much not going to make it very much longer unless something happens. And just as we're honest to our physicians with what's really going on with us, we too be honest to the great physician and say, my sin is very great. But our sin being very great is nothing that keeps us from him because what is his very mission? His mission was to come and save sinners. Romans says that he came to justify the ungodly. Therefore, God can be both just and the justifier. All sin will be dealt with either in Christ or in hell. God is the justifier, and he is just because he turns his face to no evil. He will deal with every sin in the world, either in hell or on Christ on the cross. Sin will be dealt with. So if you're found in the second category where your sins have been dealt with in Christ, you've been crucified with Christ, then there's no condemnation therefore left for you. Do you believe that? 
we get this wrong. We mess up the gospel. We say to get to heaven, you have to be a good person. And even though we know that that's not theologically correct, we still say that to ourselves. And we say, maybe God doesn't love me as much now that I've sinned. I know that as long as I sinned up to the point of my salvation, that's acceptable because that boosts my testimony. People will give me a platform. Hey, how screwed up was this person before they're saved? Now that they're saved, let them talk to everybody. But if you sin after you're saved, oof, oof, must not be a real Christian. We mess up the gospel. The gospel is for believers. And as Paul said, Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So identify correctly. Identify as a sinner, but then expect a complete and free forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Because it's not based on your performance. So how to get to heaven? Faith and repentance. Faith Knowledge, belief, trust. We have to know the offer. We have to believe the offer. And we have to trust the one who makes the offer good. We have faith not in our own performance. We don't have faith in our knowledge. We don't have faith in our faith. Because even scripture says our faith is weak and feeble. We have faith in one, Jesus Christ, who is perfectly faithful when we are faithless. We trust in him. And part of that means knowing the offer believing the offer, and trusting the one who makes the offer good. That's the first part, but what it also necessitates is repentance. And repentance is the change in beliefs, affections, and commitments. Repentance and faith are inseparable. You can't have one without the other. Because when we have true saving faith, what happens is the Holy Spirit gets inside of us and he starts to change our hearts. So he changes what we love, our affections, our commitments. It's not about personal reformation. It's not about, well, now that I've signed up for this, I guess i got to try even harder. I don't, man, I was trying hard before. I don't really know how much I, more I can give. The beauty is he changes you. You don't change you. He changes you. And what we can literally say is as we continue in the work of sanctification, as the Holy Spirit continues this work that God began in us, is that we can look back and say, I am better than I was. But then at that same point, I can look forward and say, I'm better than, T-H-E-N, because I believe that he who began a good work will continue it on in completion in the day of Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't stop. He doesn't stop. Faith and repentance go hand in hand. And be reminded of this as we close. A change in behavior is not what gets us to heaven. Rather, it is evidence that we have been made into citizens fit for heaven. So today, accept the invitation. And as we close, I want to think through this. Um, if you'll stand with me. I want to think through this analogy, which I believe is here in this, in this passage. He went out, sent people, right? So it was like, no one's going to show up to this banquet. And then the person who's giving the banquet says... In no way am I going to let this place be empty. He says, go, in verse 23, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. Even though many decline the offer, even though many excuse themselves, what will happen is that heaven will be filled still. So our work is to go preach the gospel but here's the beautiful thing, and I want you to think through this. 
There's highways, there's alleys, and there's country roads. All right, think with me here. Highways, alleys, and country roads. Maybe when God was pursuing you, he found you on the highway. He found you where everything was going well in your life. He found you in a place of influence. He found you where basically you were a mover and a shaker. You were there in the city. But God found you there and invited you there. Or maybe he found you in the alley. The alley is not where good people hang out. But as we said, the gospel is for sinners. And the people who are on the highway forget that they're sinners too. But God pursues us in the highways. He pursues us in the alleys. And these people were brought in from those types of places. And they were broken, feeble, sick people who everyone else said they have no place here. But Jesus went out and got them. Then there's the country roads. And that's the idea that we can possibly be walking out there on those lonely paths outside of the view of everybody else and you totally feel alone. God even goes there to invite people to his feast. There's nowhere that God won't go to invite people to his feast. So meditate on that the rest of this day. And as we close this morning, I wanna pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for this parable of the wedding feast that even though many were invited and every one of those who were first invited excused themselves, your mercy didn't stop there. You saw it fit to go to the highways, the alleys, and the country roads to invite everyone in the world who would respond to your invitation. That your wedding banquet will be filled even though many will excuse themselves from heaven. So Father, we are thankful that you have come. I thank you so much for sending your son, Jesus Christ, who is in very nature God, who took on the form of flesh and blood to actually become one of us, to dwell among us so that he might save us. May we trust in Christ today. So, Father, I pray that you send your Holy Spirit, the great comforter and counselor who convicts us of sin, but also helps us to recognize Jesus Christ as the true Messiah, the true physician who is able and willing to treat the sickest of us all. May we praise you this morning and thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.